Hi friends, welcome to the Athenaeum, a podcast where I, Elaine, discuss, review, and analyze books of all genres spoiler-free. I am so sorry for the hiatus, but I was excited to return when I saw that people have been listening. Thank you so much for your support. Just a quick plug, because I'm ordinarily really bad at them, I'm not paying for any advertising. The best and only way to build the community and uh, introduce this podcast to other listeners is to spread the word yourselves. I'd really appreciate it if you tell your friends and family uh, who you think would be interested. To make up for the time off, today I will be discussing two books, Serafina and its sequel, Shadow Scale, by Rachel Hartman. Serafina was published on July 10th, 2012. It was Hartman's debut novel. The sequel, Shadow Scale, was published on March 10th, 2015. So whoever read Serafina as soon as it came out, those poor people had to wait way too long. Here's the back of Serafina. Can one girl unite two worlds? In the kingdom of Gored, dragons and humans work side by side. But below the surface, tensions and hostilities are on the rise. The newest member of Gored's royal court, a uniquely gifted musician named Serafina, holds a deep secret of her own. One that she guards with all of her being. When a member of the royal family is brutally murdered, Serafina is drawn into the investigation alongside the dangerously perceptive and dashing Prince Lucian. But as the two uncover a sinister plot to destroy the wavering peace of the kingdom, Serafina's struggle to protect her secret becomes increasingly difficult, while its discovery could mean her very life. So, interesting already, and I'm not going to read the back of Shadow Scale because, spoilers, we are a spoiler-free podcast here, of course. Rachel Hartman describes herself in this bio on her website, quote, Rachel was born in Kentucky, but has lived in a variety of places including Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, England, and Japan. She has a B.A. in comparative literature, although she insists it should have been a B.S. because her undergraduate thesis was called Paradox and Parody in Don Quixote and the Satires of Lucian. She eschewed graduate school in favor of drawing comic books. She now lives in Vancouver, British Columbia with her family, their whippet, and a talking frog and salamander. End quote. She's also a comic book writer, so I desperately want to meet her and also get her to tell me how someone goes about doing that with their life, because that sounds like so much fun. Serafina received the 2013 William C. Morris Award, awarded to Best Young Adult Book, published in the U.S. by a debut author. And it won the 2002 Sibilis Award for Best Young Adult Fantasy or Science Fiction Novel. Shadow Scale appeared on the New York Times bestseller list for young adult books in its first week of eligibility. Goodreads gave Serafina a 3.96 out of 5 stars, and I thought they were fools because I gave it a 5 out of 5 stars. It is 
466 pages, but I read it in a day. It was that good. I had read Serafina several years ago, and I absolutely loved it at the time. When I got it and the sequel this year, I was worried that I wouldn't like it as much the second time around. I tend to lose patience with young adult novels, especially the romance aspects of them. But this was even better than I had remembered it. The cultures of the dragons and the Gored are so well-developed and interesting. Hartman really created an entire world, and the reader can absolutely revel in all the world-building. She also did a great job sprinkling in plot clues throughout the novel and slowly knitting the pieces of the puzzle together. There wasn't as much romance in it as I remembered or as the back cover alluded to, which I was really grateful for. I also liked how mature Serafina was about it. Too many female protagonists are incredibly wise in most situations and then somehow lose 10 years of, of wisdom and become childish about their love interests. It's such an easy way to write characters in a bad, horrible, flawed, epically gross, disgusting manner. And Hartman totally avoids that trap. She was honest about her feelings, Serafina was, that is, but she was also dedicated to her obligations. I loved the metaphors for race and ethnic issues in the book. Hartman does an excellent job of showing the complexities of cultural tension. There are heroes and villains on all sides. The political issues, rather than boring me, made me all the more invested in the world, especially since I personally want to spend my life in diversity studies. Hartman created a great fantasy world that makes the reader desperate to learn more about it, with complex and multidimensional cultural concerns. The cast of characters is diverse, and each character has depths. Plus, there's dragons! Dragons! I have a weakness for dragons, and frankly, I think everyone should. So what really, what more could anyone ask for? Goodreads undersold Shadowscale as well, giving it a 3.74 out of 5 stars. I give it a 4.5 out of 5 stars. It was 589 pages long, and um, I also read it in a day. Whoops. <laughs> the sequel was a lot darker than the original, and also a lot darker than I was even expecting. That may actually have negatively affected how I rated it. I was probably more in the mood for reading something lighter at the time. At another time, with a different mood, I probably wouldn't have given, would have given it a full five stars. I loved the development of a more LGBTQ plus inclusive world with main characters on the spectrum as well. The world seemed more inclusive even than our modern society is, actually. Not that that's particularly difficult, but I like to pretend we've made a good bit of progress. And the fact that some of the countries had so many pronoun options built into their grammar, as well as a custom that asks for preferred pronouns, and even a ceremony to declare your gender, that was... Such a cool aspect, I wish I could yank it out of fantasy and put it in reality. 
this book revealed both a trans woman and a lesbian, and Serafina accepted them both immediately, without question or hesitation. In fact, that so little was made of it shows the acceptance of Hartman's world and of Hartman herself. It's subtle representation like this that really makes me so happy. Along the same lines, the world building continued to follow the pattern of racial relations, diplomacy, and acceptance that began in the first book. Hartman rounded out that metaphor by rounding out the lore of each country. She may, and, and species even, she may have created a world that had to deal with its prejudices, but she clearly wasn't focusing on those prejudices. She didn't have those prejudices towards the characters herself. To Hartman, each of these peoples clearly had an equal right to live peacefully in their desired lifestyle. There were no lesser people in her mind, only different people. The book was not about making sure the right people got to tell how everyone else how to live, but compromising and living with each other. Each piece of this world and its lore fascinated me, and I gobbled up every sliver. I also really enjoyed the greater detail about the magic system within the world. I won't go into too much detail, but it's a fascinating concept and only gets more so. I'd love to understand it even better, but maybe that will lead to me reading the companion novel, Tess of the Road, in order to do so. Once again, the romance wasn't too overpowering, and there was more representation of different, diverse kinds of relationships as well. The book was a work of world-building that was transporting, representation that was thrilling, and just enough mystery and intrigue to keep me turning the pages. I can't say much more than that without fear of ruining it, so I just have to encourage, encourage everyone to read it for themselves. Given Hartman's emphasis on respecting pronouns in her world, I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about another subject that is near and dear to my heart, gender fluidity. To start, I want to clarify some terms for anyone who's listening and is unfamiliar. And for those of you who are familiar, here's a quick review. The term sex refers to one's biological parts, the genitalia and hormones that are part of a person's body. It is usually seen as a binary, either male or female, but recent science shows that hormones and chromosomal differences created much more of a spectrum between the two sexes than previously thought. I'm not a scientist, so I won't go into too much detail about that, but I highly re recommend uh, everyone check some of that science out. Gender refers to what a person identifies as, regardless of their anatomy. Gender is seen as a spectrum, including both male and female, as well as non-binary, gender, and gender-fluid persons. Gender expression is the kind of clothes a person wears. They often reflect a person's gender identity, but not always. For example, a trans person may not feel comfortable in clothes aligning with their gender around people that they have not come out to. Now let's talk about gender fluidity. Gender fluid is a gender identity-based best described as a dynamic mix of male and female. A person who is gender fluid may always feel like a mix of the two binary genders, but also may feel more male some days and more female other days. There are other identities that fit under the umbrella term of gender fluid, as well as identities that don't fit well on the male-female spectrum. 
A quick search of such terms comes up with agender, demigender, bigender, genderqueer, thirdgender, and two-spirit, which is a specifically Native American term. Yes, these are a lot of terms, and it might seem silly to delineate the very slight differences between these identities, but it is important to remember that in our society, it's difficult to understand the existence of a thing if that thing doesn't even have a name. Thus, having a name or a term for one's identity, even if it seems incredibly specific, helps to validate the existence and experience of that person. For someone who is cisgender, it can be incredibly difficult to understand the experience of questioning your gender, especially when the answer could be different every day or even every hour. This isn't a criticism, it's simply an understanding that some experiences are hard to relate to. To help people understand, I thought I would explain some of my own experiences as a genderqueer person. This is incredibly personal to me and probably the most explicit I've been about it, so I appreciate everyone's support. I was assigned female at birth. I have all the female parts and usually they feel like they belong. Sometimes I feel like I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. Maybe my breasts feel like they don't belong, like having them is too feminine. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm either female or male. Like I'd be more comfortable if I were flat and smooth all over, kind of like a Ken doll. It sounds silly, but it's true. Other times, it feels like I have parts I shouldn't and I'm missing parts I should have. It is genuinely so disconcerting in, in order to, to wake up one day and feel like you are missing an entire piece of body that you ought to to have. When I feel more male, I subconsciously change my body movements. I carry myself differently. I walk differently. I even have slightly different handwriting. I drive differently. When I slip from one gender to the other, I can literally feel myself changing my posture without even trying. Sometimes I bind my chest to make myself feel closer to how I ought to be. This, I do not believe, is a very unusual experience for gender-fluid people. I came to the term because I looked for people who felt like this too. And so, while I'm not saying I'm a textbook case, if this helped understand what it would, might be like, I, I, hope, I hope this was helpful, is, is what I'm trying to say. So what can we all do to make gender fluid and trans people more comfortable? First and foremost, ask for pronouns. Try getting in the habit of introducing yourself to new people with your name and your pronouns, just to help normalize it in conversation. If they don't introduce their own pronouns, politely ask for them. If someone comes out to you as gender fluid, keep in mind that their pronouns might change. Feel free to re-ask on a different day just to make sure that you're getting it right or even tell them that they should tell you if their pronouns have changed. They might not take you up on that, but the offer will make them feel understood. 
people will appreciate that you're trying, even if you screw up sometimes. And if you have questions, ask politely and respectfully. Obviously, avoid prying questions if you don't know the person well, and be prepared for even close friends to not really want to talk about it. But more likely than not, being a respectful listener is the best way to make someone more comfortable. And above all, make sure not to out someone. If you're talking about a gender fluid or trans person to someone else, and you don't know that that someone else knows your friend is gender fluid or trans, just assume they don't know. Deal with their assigned pronouns and assigned gender. It's awkward and weird and it can be uncomfortable, but it is always better to allow the person to come out themselves. Thank you for your patience for this extra long episode. Join me next time for another book. If you have any suggestions for books to review, or if you've read one of the books I've reviewed so far, get in contact. You can find me at elaine.cat, E-L-A-I-N-E dot K-A-T on Instagram, or email me at my very long email, M-O-R-P-H-E-U-S-A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M at gmail.com. That is morpheusathenaeum at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.